I'm talking about freedom from judgment of God in this case, but freedom from judgment for others in the church. Um, and so that's going to be our focus this morning. The big idea is Christ is our master and we live to him. And I want to start right off by reading Romans 14, 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both the dead and the why do you judge, pass judgment on your brother? For you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So it's a good um, a good passage, a lot of good lessons in here, and it kind of falls into the next lesson, which is the second half of that chapter, and we'll get there next week, Lord willing. Um, but I want to just kind of go through this and, and see what we can get out of it. So the first verse there, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So what does Paul mean here by opinions? Well, I think what Paul is talking about here is, is something that's not specifically spelled out in Scripture. And we know that there's a lot of things like that. People feel, uh, you know, that this is wrong. I can't show it in Scripture, but for me it's wrong. But someone else says, well, I don't have a problem with that. It's not, I don't find a place in Scripture that says it's wrong, so I'm okay with it. So, so what Paul's talking about here is, you know, when he talks about opinions, is those things that we can't go to Scripture and say, this, this is exactly how we're supposed to behave in this case, or we're supposed to think in this case. But rather, it's really a matter of conviction on one's own self or, or just opinion. And we're to welcome everyone. As long as their faith is orthodox, what does that mean? Well, orthodox would be the traditional faith of the church, the traditional faith statements. Like, you, you have to believe what the Nicene Creed says. You have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came and was... Uh, died on the cross and rose again from the dead. You have to believe certain things to, to be considered a, a Christian, to be part of the church. But there's a whole bunch of other things that are not as critical. Like, what color should the drapes be? Would be a really trivial one. But there's other things that are, that are important to some people and less important to others. We also have to remember who Paul was writing to here. Paul was writing to the church in Rome, which, in, which had a lot of Jewish people in the church, and this seems to be focused more to them. Um, 
you know over in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and all those laws that they had, the ceremonial laws, they had these set of rules to live by. They had stuff about, you know, not having two different kinds of fibers in their clothing, for example. They had, you know, um, certain things they couldn't eat, and certain ways they even had to prepare certain meals. You know, it was very specific. And what those laws really did was it set them apart. It set them apart to God, and it set them apart from the world they were living in. Because in any community that a Jewish person went into in those days, for the most part, they would stand out. Another word you might put is they would be weird in the community, right? Wow, they keep all these kind of funny rules, right? And uh, then a lot of Jewish people came into the church. They put faith in Jesus Christ. And those ceremonial laws that were part of the Old Covenant were no longer applicable that they were required to do. But tradition is a strong force. Does anyone realize that? Tradition is a strong force. And so there were some Jewish believers uh, that they accepted Christ and were like, woohoo, we can get rid of all these uh, ceremonial things, that's awesome, I'm free. But there were other Jewish people that they strongly felt, well, I still feel like I need to keep the Passover for example. I still feel like I need to keep these ceremonies because they were given to us by God. And, and so they felt like they still needed to do that, including the food laws, including um, the days that they were to celebrate. So what we need to understand, anyone who comes to Christ, whether you were Jewish or whether you were not Jewish, um, when you come to Christ, your identity then becomes in Christ. And we need to find out what that means and how we are to live then. So moving on then, he, the first example he gives is, is uh, about an eating law. In verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. Well, the weak person eats only vegetables. Now the interesting thing is, a lot of times we have this mixed the, the opposite way. Um, the person that really is strong on rules and you know the things that we have to do all the time, sometimes people think that's where the strength lies. But here Paul is saying actually the weak person one is the one that feels that they need to keep those stronger rules of tradition or the ceremonial law or the food laws. The strong person is the one who has gladly set aside the food laws. Now, how do we know the food laws were abolished? Well, let's look at a couple places in Scripture to see what, where we saw that happen. First is in Mark 7, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not the heart but his stomachs and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So that's a big key right there. Jesus himself made a point that it isn't the food you eat that makes you clean or unclean. And then we look in Acts, in, in chapter 10, it tells about Peter and his, this vision he had, and then he went to the house of Cornelius, and in verse 11, we kind of see it being recounted by Peter. And here's what he says, I'm going to read actually an extended passage here, it should be on the screen for you. In Acts chapter 11, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, 
You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mind. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and Paul was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to so Jesus, I, I read from Mark, he had said, you know, food isn't what makes you unclean. Now, God is teaching Peter that food was no longer unclean, but he also made a connection to it that not only is the food not clean, but that non-Jews could be cleansed by faith and made clean through Jesus. And this was such amazing news uh, and good news that they rejoiced to hear so here's the context of what Paul was writing here. He was writing to Jewish believers who learned this teaching and were okay eating everything or anything. And also he was writing to those who had not, they had been saved, but not yet disconnected from the traditions of faith. He continues then in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God is welcome. So Paul is saying, basically, obey your own conscience. Pay attention to what your conscience is telling you. That's the most important thing. If you are loving God and you don't feel you can eat things that are unclean, or you can't quite break from those traditions, then you're still welcome in. And those who relied on those traditions, Paul said, they were the ones that were weak. Why were they weak? Basically because their faith was not strong enough to put them at ease, as it should have, from the fact that ultimately our own behavior and our own keeping of rules doesn't save us at all. It's Jesus that saved, our faith in him that saves. And so what Jesus said when he declared all foods clean uh, showed us that, that our faith would be enough, not, not keeping of laws or rituals or anything like that. And so these people, the reason Paul is calling them weak is that they still felt like, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I still have to do this to stay safe. You may think of things today that people feel that they have to have in their Christian life, but they don't have it, they get concerned, or they feel incomplete. I don't 
think there's any perfect corollary for us because we haven't left one covenant with God to another as Christians. Rather, we left the law of sin and entered the law of righteousness. <laughs> However, we still today could think of many things that people are so convinced of that they must have. If this is not part of my Christian life, then something's wrong and I, I can't go on it. I need to find this thing. It's sometimes it's part of, like, something they expect to be part of the worship service in the liturgy. If it's taken away, then uh, even if it wasn't something that was prescribed by Scripture, they might feel the whole world is falling apart. And you see this happen. Church that Janelle and I went to many years ago, we were having a conversation and someone was frustrated by what they called the cotton tops. And we, we were like, what? You, you refer to older people as cotton tops? And they were, their frustration was that these people aren't uh, willing to change anything and we have some things that we want to do that's new. Now that can go both ways, right? We, we know that certainly can, uh, we want to honor tradition and also, uh, you know, always be looking forward as well. But that's how a lot of times people feel. You take away something they're so used to that for many years, it's hard to, to go back. Remember what Paul meant there by opinions in that first verse. That which is not specifically spelled out in Scripture. Verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now here's an important point. Who ultimately will judge how we did? Jesus. He's ultimately the one that will judge. He's, if he be our master, then it's his opinion we should be concerned with. We do things not as people pleasers, but as unto him. And in the end, we shouldn't be too concerned about brothers or sisters in Christ who hold different opinions on matters that are not the paramount. Will you break fellowship because someone likes their worship a little more bluegrass than you like hymns? Will you break fellowship because you feel communion should be once per month and another one feels it should be every week? Will you break fellowship because the building isn't built the way you would have preferred? Will you break fellowship because you there are or are not hymn books in the pews? That was another one in the church, a different church we went to once. And a guy, I don't know if it had just been after their annual month meeting, and this guy triumphantly said, we got the hymn books back, and people were cheering. And so I didn't know what the context of it was. I think it was our first Sunday there or something. And said, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to know the story behind that, or maybe I wouldn't. But will we break fellowship over things like that? Will we break fellowship because we didn't get the program we wanted in the church? And we can find new, endless examples of things like that. Bottom line is that my main job is not to agree with each of you or you to agree with me, but to agree with Christ. I've said before, as you consider all the different ways that churches are run, from congregational style, where the church basically votes on every decision, to Presbyterian style, where the leadership at the top rules from the top down. And our church, just in case you're wondering, we're kind of a hybrid of those two. Um, but why are there all these differences in how the churches run their business side Well, it's because scriptures doesn't give us the sample bylaws. Our denomination does, and they say, here's sample bylaws. The church should generally have this in the bylaws. But the Bible itself doesn't give sample bylaws. 
It doesn't command a congregational style, per se, and it doesn't lay out all the specifics. It doesn't demand a lot of things. And I've sometimes wondered, why didn't God just do it? Why didn't he just say, here's the specific exact ways that every church ought to run, and here's the exact order of service you should have every Sunday? Wouldn't that make things easier if Scripture was that specific? Here, if the Bible just said, here's the bylaws for every church, thus says the Lord, well, that would be the end of all our arguments, wouldn't it? I don't think so. People always find things are as well. No, I wonder if the reason that these things were not laid out with great specificity, like the thousands of pages of laws that we have in our government, Perhaps he didn't give us all the specifics for the very reason that we need to learn how to get along with each other. Maybe we need to learn that we need to welcome one another even when we do not agree on every detail. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as a, better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced, convinced in his own mind. So ultimately, you have to check scripture, make sure you're in scripture first, and then after that, make sure that your conscience is pure before the Lord. James also said that if you, if the one who doesn't do what he knows he ought to do is a sin. And uh, so when the Lord has put something on our heart, we feel like we need to do something, we need to honor our own conscience in those matters that scripture doesn't speak specifically to. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to, the, to God. And the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So the same principle that Paul just finished about food, now he's applying to days. Some Jewish Christians felt they should still celebrate those holy days, like the Passover. Why? Because, for one thing, they, they said, hey, even though I'm in Christ, even though I'm not in the, the Old Covenant, I still say that God set up these holy days as a remembrance, and we should still do them. They remind us of God's faithfulness. And, and there are probably, I would guess, there are probably Jewish Christians today that still, if not in a religious sense, still remember the Passover so they can remember God's faithfulness. Paul is saying that if a Jewish believer of his day felt that they should still celebrate those feasts, they were doing it because they were honoring the Lord. And he also was saying the same thing with those who are eating, one way or the other. He said they're doing it because they're honoring the Lord. What if we went into life assuming that other people in the church were trying to honor the Lord? How much would that change our outlook? If we look at that famous love passage from 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it does, is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. And then later on it says, love bears all things and believes all things. If you've ever studied that, a lot of the people who study this feel that when he says believes all things, it means that we're assuming the best about brothers and sisters in Christ. Taking the attitude that I believe they are doing what they think is right. If we have love, so in other words, that's the opposite of cynicism. When you, when you consider other people in the church, you should be the opposite of a cynic. But rather, and that doesn't mean you're gullible either, but it means that you assume the best about them. If we have love, we will appreciate our diversity. 
Remember whose church it is anyways. We serve Christ first. We serve each other after that. If I believe all things, that is, if I assume the best about others and assume their intentions are good, even though I may get irritated at them from time to time, I can still walk in love. Neither you or I should insist on our own way. Rather, we should insist on Christ's way. And where the details are in dispute, then we're to get along anyway, be it bearing with one another in love. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both of the dead Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us will give account of himself to God. Now next week we're going to get into a further application of this passage as Paul continues this section with a warning about not causing someone else to stumble. Today we've learned about trying to be unified even when we have differences and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll see how Paul expands this idea of freedom in a warning that we are not to cause others to stumble by our insistence on having our own way. But that's for next week. So just to recap for our passage this morning, the one who needs stronger rules or structures such as those based on tradition, Paul considers that person to be the weaker person of the faith. That should be welcomed and not chastised, not put into a position of having to argue for that belief. If someone feels that they should be a vegetarian because that's what their conscience drives them to do, then they should do that. And the one who is more comfortable eating whatever's on the table shouldn't despise the one who limits their diet. And the one who limits their diet shouldn't pass judgment on the one who eats more. If our lives are lives of worship, we're we live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. So we ought not to allow other people's opinions of us to rule us in a way that would violate our own consciences before God. And we must never judge another whose conscience demands of them something different than our conscience in matters of opinion. Remember, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about matters of opinion, things that are not clearly required by Scripture, but that some believers feel strongly in their own heart they should or shouldn't do. Is Paul saying that we shouldn't call each other out on things that are clearly sin? No, he's not saying that. In fact, he's clear, Scripture's clear, that those things that we know are sin because Scripture says they're sin, we do need to hold each other accountable to. But on matters of conscience that are not clearly written in Scripture, we must respect, and more than respect, we must still love the one we disagree with. Some of my best friends, it turns out, are people that on some issues I disagree strongly with. Um, not necessarily scripturally, but on other things. We have opinions. In some cases, I, I would say I have a stronger bond with some of my friends precisely because we did disagree on something, but we decided that friendship was more important. Why? Because before Christ alone will each stand or fall. 
I've been here almost seven years now. Some of us in this room, maybe or others in the church, have had a tussle tour about things that we disagree with. But if we decide the relationship is more important than our personal opinions, then we'll grow stronger together, and many of us have. And this is the application we must take away and apply to every relationship, but especially to those who are in the family of God. We must bind ourselves together because of the not let our opinions drive a wedge between us. But can it be done? Well, I have an example that gives me some hope because it boggles my mind. For many years, this marriage uh, that's of a public couple, and if you're a political junkie, you may have heard of this couple. They're James Carville and Mary Madeline. James Carville is a political strategist he is sometimes referred to as a raging Cajun. He's a lot of times on some of these political shows. And he is credited with being the lead strategist for Bill Clinton when he ran for president. James is married to Mary Madeline, who is also a political strategist on the other side. She served under Reagan, and then she was the campaign director for George H.W. Bush. He was the campaign director for Bill Clinton. She was the campaign director for George H.W. Bush in the same, same campaign. And Janelle and I have seen these two. They don't usually appear together because when they do, they argue pretty strongly with each other. And we've seen them. And we, we said, how could they even get the same car together? They're, they're so at odds politically. They have such different opinions. Uh, they support different parties. And yet, for many years, decades now, they've remained married. And apparently, their marriage is healthy, as far as, as far as I can tell. Why? Well, they chose not to talk about politics at home. Now, I don't know how they do that. But they go home and they, they have an agreement. They don't talk about their jobs or politics at home. Now, I don't know if they're people of faith. I tried to find out, and I couldn't find any information saying one or the other, but if those two diametrically opposed people can have what appears to be a strong marriage despite some really big disagreements on some really big issues, then how much more in the church where we who are bound together in Christ should be able to get along despite our differences? We can, and we must. And as I close here, I want to close with a reminder of what it is that God is doing in us and through us in his church. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, that's all of us, who are in Christ, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is an amazing, amazing picture of what God is doing through us and in us. We grow together. We're all parts of the same structure. Some might be a foundation block. We say, yes. 
scripture says the apostle is Christ himself being the cornerstone. Others may be in the plumbing. I don't know where we all are. But the glory of God is in this building that he's putting together. The great illustration of this. I've been driving past this building that's been going up down the road here every day and seeing it go up. And you, you consider how when a building goes up, you have all these different people with different talents that put it together. You've got flooring guys, you've got foundation guys, you've got uh, every other trade that builds a building, from plumbers to electricians, all of that. And in the end, you see a nice looking building that comes up. How much more is God building us together to be a dwelling place for him? And what a glorious God that is. So I'll close with that and pray. Lord, thank you for the message this morning. May we be encouraged by knowing this fact that if we are in Christ, you are building us together into a dwelling place for yourself. Lord, this is only something that you can do, but we want to be part. I pray, Lord, that as your church here in Wagner, we would take heed to your word and practice this. Jesus' name. Amen.